This episode of the Cigar Social Podcast is brought to you by Black Star Line Cigars. From the highly rated Warwich to the outstanding Lalibela and Classic El Milagro. These cigars are absolutely incredible and use the absolute best tobacco from Aganorsa Leaf, which is farmed and expertly handcrafted in Esteli, Nicaragua. Visit them at blackstarline.shop and use promo code CIGARSOCIAL15 for 15% off your entire order and receive free shipping on all orders over 100 bucks. Black Star Line Cigars. Cigars are a daily operation. Hello and welcome back to a slightly renovated Cigar Social Podcast. This is episode 22. My name is Matt. I am your host. Thanks for listening. In the spirit of renovation, our guest and the company that he comes from has been through a fair share of restorations, if you would. Uh, I've been excited to connect with him about the distillery, the history, the restoration. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, the Whiskey Wizard, the brand ambassador, and... The master blender, if I'm not mistaken, at Castle and Key Distillery, folks, Brett Connors. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me on today. I'm excited to yeah, talk about cigars and whiskey. It's going to be a good day. It's a good combination. And it's something that, you know, it's not bad sitting here around at noon with bottles in front of me, a lit cigar, and good company. So let's, before we dive into Castle and Key, I want to take a minute. We'll talk about what I'm smoking, and then we'll get into what I'm drinking. Um, today is the, the Opus X. Whoops. Uh, actually, the, the X confused me. It's an inside cigar joke. I'm sure people are giggling at that one. Uh, this is actually the CAO BX3. This is a 6x54 Toro and has a medium strength. Uh, I think it's super smooth right off the jump. Has a Brazilian Matafina wrapper and, and Brazilian binder and fillers from Nicaragua, Mexico, and Honduras. It's really funky sometimes when you get Brazilian tobacco. It's not really common. Not a lot of people use it. I mean, you go for the, the basic core locations, Cuba, Nicaragua, Honduras, Mexico. But Brazilian is a very interesting choice to use. Uh, so far, I'm getting notes of espresso, dark chocolate, a little bit of pepper. I think the pepper comes from the part, the Nicaraguan filler. I'd say bold body, very balanced. We'll see how it powers through with what we're going to experience today. MSRP is around 10 bucks. Now, onto the bottle, or should I say bottles? I have three expressions here from Castle and Key. And before we'll dive, we'll, we'll dive into each one as we go through the conversation with Brett, but I'm going to start with the Harvest Seasonal Gin. Now, I'm not a a big gin drinker, but I have sampled this, um, and we're going to talk about it. Correct me if I'm wrong, the mash bill's 17% yellow corn, 63% rye, 20% malted barley. Um, Yeah, so that's one of the, I think, the special parts about a rye and gin is for all of our spirits, we're going to constitute our own grain neutral spirit, or we're going to constitute our own new make. So we're not buying from a larger factory and then just kind of distilling that up or flavoring it with additives. <clears throat> the focus is really to start and own that kind of line of production from scratch. 
Okay. So I think of it, you know, in some ways when you look at like estate grown cigars or like some of those kind of like micro perspectives where they just want a ton of control over the good that they're producing. So yeah, we start with our rye whiskey new make to make gin, which is not the most affordable or logical way to do it, uh, but it makes a pretty damn good gin. Yeah, that's, I'm going to go off of the product specs because there's a lot going on here. Yeah. Keep me honest, but from from what it says, the aroma slight pine, bay leaf, fresh cracked pepper, up front, highlighted with a, a light array of berries, sweet anise, savory herbal uh, herbal notes, and a, a touch of tanginess. And that's just the aroma. Um, I, I think that's something we're, we're prideful of. You know, I think when you're looking at spirits or cigars, you know, you're going to kind of smoke and drink with your nose before you do damn near about anything. So if you don't love the aromatics of something, I think it's hard for me to want to like dive further into it. So especially with gin, you know, the, I think you're going to win on the nose and the palate's just kind of a reminder that it's going to be pretty tasty too. Yeah. It has a lot going on, um, but doesn't give you that pine tree, you know, cheaper gin. You get more of the botanicals, more of the aromas, and it almost invites you into the glass. It says, you know, come on, let's, let's, Let's go take a ride. Uh, <laughs> the taste. I'm, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's from not a gin fan. That's what it tells me. It says, get in a car, we can go take a ride. Um, the taste, the spec sheet say fresh cedar, licorice, woodsy and earthy, notes of tart, dark berries, cinnamon, fennel, clove, and soft pepper. I definitely get the the pepper and the fennel on my end that not an expert in in notes but those two are definitely slightly licorice but more of a like that fennel but with a pepper at the end yeah i think that was the goal of this one you know with our seasonal gins we have a flagship under the roots of ruin label so that's going to be super consistent available all year round really designed for you know, your classic gin and tonics, Vespers, Martinis, you know, Negronis, whatever you want to put in it. But then when we look at seasonality, you know, I think over the course of the year, I don't eat and drink the same things. You know, I know probably the cigar space is probably pretty similar. When you're on a boat, you don't want like a Churchill, like Robusta, that's just going to like put you down when you're trying to like enjoy the summer. Yeah. Where, you know, I think with this gin, it's stylistically attenuated to be really interesting in that kind of fall winter weather. Yeah, so this is really my kind of go-to gin from, I'd say, probably when it starts getting cold and maybe like October all the way through really like March in Kentucky. And I think the idea with this was to be really licorice forward. Uh, you also hit the nail on the head with it being very botanically driven. Um, you know, I would never criticize another gin style, but, you know, for so long, gin was really centric to that singular style. You had London Dry Gin, Super Juniper, Pine Forward, you know, brands like Beefeater, you know, Bombay. They do that really, really well. Um, they also have a lot more money than us. So, you know, they're spending money on marketing. They have a loyal fan base. You know, if you dig that style of gin, they're so hard to compete against. And our view was like, well, instead of trying to copy what another successful brand's been doing, you know, what if we kind of find our own voice in the space? So the idea is to, was to start working up seasonal gins that are botanically centric, that are definitely us, um, you know, that cocktail really well. Like all the proof on all of our products is generally a little bit higher than usual just to make sure it's going to handle a cocktail. Um, and I think that's the way most people are going to drink gin. 
you know, so we'll send you over some recipes later if you get desperate. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, yeah, I was I, like, I always say, yeah, I was like, no one drinks neat gin unless they've had a pretty bad day. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, cocktails I, are definitely the way to enjoy it. I'm going to go out on the limb and say it's actually really good neat. Um, the bottles are a little cold because I'm sitting in a shed in the middle of Chicago. Yeah. So it's got a little chill to it. <laughs> but straight out of, I mean, it, it, for a neat gin, it's pretty neat. It's <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I love the dad pun. That always makes me feel good too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I think that's the great thing about our gin when we design it in the R&D side. Like we always want it to be good neat, but we also want to verify that it's going to be viable in cocktails too. Absolutely. And then the, the finish, the spec sheet's a sweet and spicy finish. Uh, gives away to woody mineral notes with a lingering heat the light numbing. I can't agree more. And the proof I mean, I on this. Numbing's I, like kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. The proof is 102. Um, like I said, I, I, anything else to add on to this? Cause I'm, I'm really impressed uh, with this gin. No, I mean, I, I appreciate the compliments. You know, our team works really hard on this R and D program and, Initially, we were actually rotating them. So there was a different one every kind of spring and uh, fall season. But with this, you know, the idea, this was so beloved by our consumers and our team that we kind of decided to make it more of a permanent extension so we could get even weirder on our R&D side for like smaller projects. Um, but yeah, for me, it's it's a great proof. I think it drinks beautifully. It cocktails really well. And you know, I, I'm pretty prideful that I think our gins are a great bridge into the category, you know. Even when we're doing events with consumers, I always ask, like, why don't you like gin? And I think 90% of the room doesn't like gin because they stole it from, you know, their parents or whatever in high school or like when they were legal and they, you know, had a bad experience on gin. But I mean, you, I feel like you probably see it in the cigar space, too. You know, if the first time you smoke a cigar, it's not something kind of like mild or like a viable entry into the category and you grab your dad's heater, you know, like a 90s Cohiba out of his humidor. One, he's probably going to get mad. Two probably not going to really enjoy that experience. So you're going to get spooked off from the yeah. category or experience as a whole. And I think, you know, our gins are a really great way to say like, Hey, if you like flavor, you're going to dig our gins. And then it kind of gives you a bridge into, there's a lot of really great gin producers in the United States now. I mean, there's great gin producers in Spain, Italy. There's always been great gin producers in the UK, uh, but it's a category that I don't think gets the love it deserves. And as a, you know, previously coming from a bartending background, Man, if you if you don't have a good bottle of gin in your house, you're just missing out. No, absolutely, and I think gin is going to be like the next craft uh, boom, if you would. Uh, we know a, a cigar company, Room One Hundred One, Matt Booth. He he came out with his own gin, and I think that's just going to be the beginning awesome. of of a, a maybe not a boom, maybe a little bump, but I think gin is definitely going to be trending uh, pretty soon. Uh, so. Can you tell us? Yeah, how I mean, I think you see that in industry numbers. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us how you got involved with Castling Key? Man, um, I think fortune. You know, I always think I'm, I'm always looking out for opportunities and just always have my whole life. And um, after I graduated college, I got into the food and beverage space again. You know, that's part of the way I got through college as well. I was working in restaurants, doing like casual fine dining. And then when I moved to Kentucky, I was chasing a brunette. We're now married and have a kid together. So that like worked out. Um, 
yeah, I moved to Kentucky to be closer to a girlfriend at the point that that point, and I started working in a, another corporate restaurant group and just bartending, serving, you know, really being focused on like hospitality. Started to do some consultation in that space as well, you know, helping whiskey bars. This is back in like you know the twenty what 2014 2015 time period so you're seeing like this boom of whiskey bars throughout the nation at that point as well and um i did you know some support there just to make sure people had a good cocktail menu they knew what they were talking about they knew what to buy they knew how to talk to certain brands and then i got lucky i through a mutual friend um met the founding partners of castle and key will arvin and then subsequently west murray and um i just liked them you know they said hey my buddy was like, Vince was like, hey, you got to meet these guys. They're going to buy this distillery and they need some help. And I thought they were like joking, right? You know, so I meet Will and he says, yeah, we're, we bought this. We're going to buy this distillery. Um, we're looking at it. It's the historical Taylor facility in Woodford County or in Millville. And I was like, wow, that's a super, super important historic brand. That's a super important historic facility to our team, to our state, and to the really the nation. Um, and I was like, so what do you know about whiskey? He's like, well, I like drinking it. <laughs> and I know about real, I, I know about real estate development and he's like, you just got to see this place. It like, it makes it too obvious to want to build and to want to renovate. And, um, I just kind of started having conversations with Will initially about, you know, what a hospitality program would look like. You know, what do we think consumers are into? What do you think guests would want to experience? Um, and about just the general scale of the project, you know, the initially, when I met Will, we had been talking about somewhere between about three to $5 million in renovation. Um, and it was going to be a much smaller plan, you know, a small single barrel kind of system, like maybe a 500 gallon pot, um, looking at building that in the old boiler room of the site. That was going to be our tasting room, our retail space, our distillery, our fermentation. It was, and then the rest of the site was really going to be a, a museum piece. You know, we were going to kind of freeze everything else in time um, and just talk about it as what it was. And then when we started really digging into the site, we realized that it needed to get a lot bigger. Um, and then I ended up leaving the corporation I was with in Lexington, that awesome restaurant company, uh, Bluegrass Hospitality Group. I think they do really good work. And I just kind of wound down my opportunity there and then started full time in 2016 with Castle and Key, focusing on our future. You know, we were a small startup. You know, I wanted yeah. to take the risk because I thought I'd have more opportunity to learn. Um, so I got to learn underneath our previous master seller, Marion Eves, who's an absolute rock star in the industry and um, just listened when people talked and have gotten to work with a lot of really cool distillers and a lot of really great uh, customers and clients too. And just started getting into blending and then getting into some R&D stuff and then getting into product strategy. So taking kind of what I learned in the consumer experience space and saying, you know, we, we were doing that in a bottle too. The idea is it's not, you're not just drinking, you're engaging with a brand or hopefully hanging out with your friends. And, you know, how do you have a product tell a story? Um, you know, was what I really got involved with. And from then on, man, I've just been hanging out, drinking whiskey and um, having a pretty damn good time. That's the way you should really be enjoying life, right? Um, can you go through some of the history with Castle and Key how did it even start? Who came up with the idea? Who, whose idea was it to take on this restoration undertaken? Um, and then we'll go into the location itself and the restoration afterwards, but just kind of a, a little bit of a history behind Castle and Key. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, I love the history of the historic brand as well, but with the modern brand, I think it kind of came out of a place of neglect. Um, you know, the pr prior owners in the eighties, the brands were transferred in, um, from national distillers during a merger with Jim Beam. Uh, then Jim Beam didn't decide to really utilize the site. So we passed hands a few times in the nineties. We ended up with an architectural salvage company in the early two thousands. So when we first came to the site, you were witnessing about two decades of incredibly intense neglect. 80% um, of our roofs were damaged, if not missing. There was no water, no sewage, no electrical. Um, you know, there wasn't even really a way to get to many of the buildings on site. And in some ways it was Will not having a background in distillation that actually made him not afraid of that. You know, when you're looking at who visited and toured the site to purchase it in the 90s, it was all the big boys. You know, Brown Foreman looked at the site, Kieran looked at the site, you know, Beam Centauri looked at the site again. Like everybody in that corporate space looked at this place and it was just like really aggressive. Like no one kind of knew what the final dollar amount was going to be. Like no one knew what how long it was going to really take to restore. Everybody was kind of fearful of it because it's just much more affordable to expand your previous facilities or to build a new facility. Um, and Will sort of thought that was going to happen, but he just wasn't scared. He loved the history. Um, he loved the physical space and he found it on Google. I think that's like <laughs> the wilder part of the story. Uh, you know, he'd been at Keeneland, you know, one of the best and prettiest racetracks in the world, just watching the horses race you know, drinking a bourbon with one of his buddies who has another whiskey brand, actually. And he was like, man, this is cool. Like bourbon is just fundamentally a cool thing. You know, being he was he's from born and uh, bred, raised in Kentucky. You know, he was an attorney by trade. And he was like, bourbon's not only cool, but like, why don't we know more about it? You know, and I think now with the Internet and just the passion that people have for bourbon, there's just way better resources out there for learning. But frankly, in like, I'd say even as early as the late aughts or even the beginning of like that 20... 14 time period, there just wasn't as much information. You know, there weren't really a ton of podcasts about it. There were a few magazines, but not the proliferation you see now. Um, it just wasn't the same information. So Will was like, well, I want to learn more about it. I want to, I want to own a bourbon distillery. And our buddy was like, it's easy. You buy whiskey from a large facility and then you work on blending it, bottling it. Then you spend your money on marketing dollars and sales. And Will's like, yeah, that sounds great, but I want to like own a facility. And he was like, cool, if you buy a facility, we'll buy whiskey from you, but we don't want to own a facility because it's really expensive. Right. And Will was like, fine, then I'm going to, I'm going to go look at this place. And, uh, you know, he kind of kicked the tires on it for a little bit. Um, the price was higher than when we ended up purchasing it, but the final number on the facility was about under a million bucks, um, which is a decent deal. If you don't consider that is a down payment on the, you know, removal of overgrowth and the removal of, you know, there's a lot of lead pipes here and stuff. So you had to really wow. spend almost two years to just see what you had. Yeah. Um, you know, we spent two years just kind of stripping the facility of damage. Um, then we what we found is that a lot of the buildings that we thought were a loss were able to be restored, brought back to life. You know, it's not the cheapest process, but, you know, I think it's a huge credit to Will that he had kind of the wherewithal to do the right thing. You know, I think that's one of the challenges we face throughout the United States with historic preservation. You know, everybody wants to tear down an old house and build new. Like, it's frankly cheaper. It's shiny. It looks good. Like, you live in Chicago. That history just can't be replaced. No. You know, if you're not working on – and it's also built better. Like, if we want to be honest about it, like, we have 36, six, uh, 36 
inch thick limestone walls for our facility, no one is ever building that way again. <laughs> like, you know, like just everything was over-engineered, overbuilt. It was made to last, you know, centuries. It's a as castle. Long as it maintained. It, it is a physical castle in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a huge credit to the way, you know, they used to build. And I think our job was to take somewhere that wanted to be restored and to give it the love that it had been asking for for three decades. Absolutely mind blown when I saw pictures. I, I was able to find some of the before and obviously the after. Beautiful facility, beautiful property. It's definitely a million dollar dice roll the way you put it. It was like, well, let's let's yeah. put it out, see what we got. It may not work. <laughs> so that it, impressive. Yeah, I mean, it may it may not have worked. Yeah. I mean, I love, but I love a, I love a gambler's attitude, right? You know, like that whole entrepreneurial spirit, you know, for Will to just say like, look, this is the right thing to do. And we're going to just roll the dice on it and see if it shakes out, you know, worst case scenario, you end up losing a lot of money, you know, best case scenario, you build something that is unique and custom and no one's seen before. Um, and I think we're retrospectively, we can look back now and be prideful. You know, man, there was a lot of times during that we were pretty terrified, you know, <laughs> just the scale of this project kept getting bigger and it's just more and more risk. And you just kind of had to push in and say like, hey, we feel in our hearts that this was the right decision. Um, and we got to a point where it was kind of like, you have to, you have to go all in and you got to trust your hand on it. Um, and it ended up working out. What were some of the major challenges with the restoration? Um, I, I, I heard that. You had the old uh, tanks, but you didn't want to remove them or secure them. So they filled them with concrete or something like that. So just keep the original aesthetics and, and not lose that history. What are some other you know, yeah. restoration efforts that really kind of uh, was unique or, or stood out? Man, I mean, that's definitely in the boiler room. I think that's a great example of it. We had four massive boilers. Two of them were on the ground. They had crumbled. And then we chose to preserve the other two just to keep them standing because, you know, you could never replace that aesthetic. Um, I think the big challenge was just infrastructure. It's not the sexiest challenge, uh, but, you know, how we run off natural gas and we're, you know, we're, we have these two massive, like 350 horsepower plus boilers here. So how do you get enough natural gas down here to run? Um, yeah. How do you build sewage systems when there are none? You know, how do you get the electrical upgraded down here? We have miles of infrastructural pipe works. You know, I think that's a huge credit to the teams we've worked with on that side. You know, there's a company called Biotalk that helped us with some of that. You know, Marianne had a background in chemical engineering. It was really helpful in figuring out connectivity and kind of the engineering of what, how do you connect that site? Uh, we worked with a Clark Mechanical. Um, yeah. They were, they're probably the best pipe fitters in the state where they just say, hey, we want this tank to go to this pump figure it out. And like, you know, the lines here are squirrely, right? Like everything's kind of ran in weird ways. And so that's a weird one to say, but how do you make a modern facility in the frame of an old one is tricky. Uh, I think some of that we were fortunate. We were able to use a lot of the old historic vessels here. So our fermentation tanks are from the fifties, you know, our grain bins are from the thirties, wow. you know, our, our scale hoppers, which weigh grain are from the thirties you know, but we were able to modernize them and bring them into like the now um, through just being really creative about engineering on them. 
Um, I've never worked, you know, I, my father actually historically ref, uh, kind of did a lot of work on historic reservation on a variety of homes that we lived in over my life. And living in something is a heck of a lot easier than figuring out how to turn it into, you know, a hundred barrel a day plus production facility. Um, you know, renovating our warehouses. Another good example of that was warehouse E on site is massive. It is a 60,000 barrel warehouse. Well, in the early 2000s, they took all the metal ricking out of it and they left these big openest cavern, kind of cavernous spaces. So re-ricking that was a weird challenge. You know, it's, we had to, we opened it back up and it's like a jigsaw puzzle fitting all that construction inside. Um, trying to think of other stuff. A lot of it's balance, you know, figuring out how we could make the whiskey we wanted to make, you know, first and foremost, we are a bourbon distillery. So the focus is always on product. Like we want to make good whiskey and we want to make as much of it as we can. But the other component was also to be really mindful of our guest experience component. So, you know, if you have the opportunity to tour Kentucky, there's a variety of facilities that aren't publicly accessible because they're product, they're very production oriented, you know, like Brown Foreman's primary facility is not accessed by the public. Heaven Hills primary facility does not have public tours. Oh, wow. um, you know, there's like a uh, Sazerac just shut off access to the old Tom Moore facility where Barton's produced. You know, the idea is like they're, they're incredibly production oriented and that's what they are. But with us, the idea was like, okay, well, as a new brand, how do you share this space that was meant for tourism as late as, you know, as early as the beginning of the, the 1900s or, eight, or late 1800s, you know, our facility was always designed with tourism in mind. So how do we not only produce whiskey, but also offer guests kind of a sneak peek behind that curtain? How do you bring them in and have them just have a good time? Um, so it was taking a lot of our site, you know, we have an old uh, natural spring on facility. It's in the shape of a keyhole. It's awesome. I'm sure we'll probably talk about it more mm -hmm. later, but that whole side of the site, we took an old train depot, we turned it into a cocktail bar. We're looking at long-term some restaurant opportunities on site. We have a quarter mile long botanical trail. We have Adirondack chairs by the creek. You know, our, my, my view is always like, hey, if you don't know who we are and you're touring other distilleries, come and just smoke a cigar by the creek. Grab a beer, grab a glass of wine, grab yeah. a cocktail. If, you know, we're full on tours, don't stress out. Just, you know, we gave guests kind of a different way to enjoy the bourbon trail. And then we were so successful in it that you saw a lot of other distilleries that are a lot larger than us starting to kind of pivot. They were like, oh man, that's actually a pretty good idea. Like having some just spaces to hang out in or gardens and just making it a little bit prettier. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the biggest challenge for us is how do we operate, operate safely, operate effectively um, while still giving guests a way to just come and hang out and experience our brand and our hospitality here. It's, it's the experience, right? I, I... Yeah, it's, it's nice to go to a distillery to do the tour, to do the tasting, yeah. to see how everything. Um, actually, I'm going to a local Illinois distillery next weekend. Just to, it, was, it was a previous awesome. guest, uh, Whiskey Acres. They're in DeKalb. They're 30 cool. minutes from here. But uh, going to check out their facility. But like you said, it, it, especially in the land of Kentucky where the Bourbon Trail and the, it's it's essentially yeah. the, the, the tourist spot for whiskey drinkers. Yeah. Give them something a little extra. Give them that experience of, you know what? Do the tour, do the tasting, grab a glass, go down by the creek and light, light a cigar and, and relax. I think that's awesome. Yeah, and I think, 
Yeah, it was also, we didn't have whiskey at first, you know, we're on the bourbon trail and we're asking people to come by and drink gin and vodka cocktails. Like, you know, <laughs> I think people's like a lot of the hardcore whiskey nerds had their brains melt, but you know, our view was we're also seeing a diversity of guests on the bourbon trail. Like we've never had before. You know, when I first moved to Kentucky, it was a lot of bachelor parties. It was a lot of like, just a little bit more male centric, but you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of like couples trips and like different friend groups. The one that blows my mind is seeing bachelor like bachelorette parties. You know, normally those are reserved for like na like Nashville, but you have people who come out who Kentucky has an amazing food scene. It's incredibly affordable from a hospitality perspective. Yep. There's a lot of awesome hotels here and it's gorgeous. So you don't necessarily have to go to a big city. And if, you know, I think of like me, man, if I had, if I was doing a bachelor party in my thirties, the last thing I want to do is to go to like a club. Like, yeah. like I want to sit by the Creek. I want to smoke cigars and drink good whiskey and just like hang out with my buddies. And I think you're seeing a lot of people kind of looking for that just alternative experience. Also, if you dig hiking and camping, you know, Kentucky has some of the best hiking and camping in the nation. So, you know, I think we offer people sleep on the state a little bit, but the, if you want to just enjoy the outdoors and have a good time, man, central Kentucky might be one of my favorite places in the U.S. to do that. I drive to Tennessee quite often. I yeah. just drive right through there. And I definitely this next trip, I want to maybe do a little pit stop in Kentucky and hang out, and check out some of the facilities down there. Um, I've only done a couple tours just do down a couple there, days. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hey, yeah, uh, I always say, I, I say, get us, we'll get you for a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I just poured the restoration rye. Uh, I'm going to yeah. go through this real quick. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite ryes, I, I keep saying this, but I, I used to say I'm not a rye guy. I think I'm a rye guy now. Um, a couple of yeah. previous yeah. guests had brought rye here in the shed, and I'm like, wow, I didn't know I liked that. Or I used to never like that. And there are some ryes I, I still, I've tried since I've discovered my love for rye. And I'm like, mm, that's not the rye. That's the rye I remember. Um, this one is definitely in my top three so far. And I haven't really, I mean, it's phenomenal. It, it is a, a fantastic rye. So this is the restoration rye. I, I saw the label. I saw the, the hands moving the letters. I, I like the little play on restoration. Um, aroma, fruit, yeah. honey, toasted oak, taste. I think I, I, I certainly agree, except for one I saw in a spec, spec sheet that I, I, I don't get the marshmallow, but I definitely get the light brown sugar, a little bit of cinnamon, black tea. It, it's a very interesting taste. And then the finish, tobacco, toast, and dark chocolate which goes hand in hand with the tobacco and with the dark chocolate notes. This is a, like a, a, a perfect marriage when it comes to the finish. So I would definitely suggest these two so far uh, for a great pair if you're looking for one. Batch size, 60 barrels, aged three yeah, years. Thank you. Um, proof 105 and uh, can't tell. Usually rise above the 100 mark. Gives you that burn, gives you that that unwanted harshness. This is a very smooth 105, uh, and I can see why you received 91 points I mean, in the yeah. Ultimate Spirits Challenge in 2022, and then you won gold at the San Francisco Spirits Competition. And I can absolutely see why. 
Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think our goal with rye was similar to gin, where I think you mentioned it well. I think there are a lot of bourbon or whiskey drinkers that got into rye maybe in like, you know, the last few years, there's a lot of ryes out there that tend to be pretty assertive. A lot of them nationally were being produced by one facility, you know, that MGP, LDI, like 95.5 rye grain bill. Um, Depending on how you blend it can often be very spice driven and it can have a lot of like kind of back barrel structure to it. So people are going to perceive it to be a little bit hotter, a little bit more aggressive. But if you look at some like a lower rye percentage, like that 63 is kind of between a Maryland and a Mahongahela style rye, you're going to have some corn and some barley in there that's going to add a lot of flavor depth. So I think you get a little bit of a rounder rye that's going to be able to be a little bit more flexible with your flavor profile. So it's not going to be as spice assertive. You're going to have a little bit more sweetness. Something barley really does that I love, especially if you are a cigar smoker, is I think it gives you better access to viscosity. Yeah. So you're going to have a little bit of a rounder mouthfeel. Uh, you're going to have a little bit more layer in general. It can be a little bit more grain bright, but I think the real benefit is it helps you get the flavors like tobacco, leather, you know, all your like almond, cashew, pecan. So I think there's a lot of flavors there that pair really well with cigars. So a higher barley percentage is going to generally, I think, collaborate well with the smoke, which is why I think you see a lot of people smoke um, like a cigar with a bourbon or they're going to smoke a cigar with like a nice like uh like a space sides or a highland malt um where you don't see a lot of people you know smoke a ton of cigars like irish whiskey because they tend to be a little bit light and very grain bright um but i think the goal of this rye whiskey was to make something that we were pretty excited about i also love the proof we change them every batch is going to have a different proof uh we decide that because that's where it tasted the best you know i've always said we never decide a proof for marketing purposes. Like, yeah, our marketing team would probably love if it was 87 proof because the distillery was built in 1887. Uh, um, man, that just, if it, that's not, if it doesn't make it taste better, that's probably not something we're going to do. No. Um, it also means that it's a pretty pure product. You know, there's not a ton of water in that bottle. You know, we're not cutting from 140 down to 80. You know, you're really, we're going from probably in the 115, 116 range down to that proof point. Um, and we want to make sure it's high enough too that your neat drinkers are going to dig it. But we also make sure it takes ice and dilution. So if you want it on a big stone, um, if you you know you drink it the way my dad does with a bunch of sonic ice and a 16 ounce tumbler, that's cool too. Uh, you know we want to make sure that it's going to be the whiskey you want you want it to be, right? Yeah. Like you know if you if you like ice, don't be afraid. Um, I always say you know you can pour ginger ale in there too as long as you tip 20%. I don't really care. Um, you know, just be responsible with the way you drink it. I guess is kind of my thought. Speaking of the water that you touched on a little bit, we'll segue into, correct me if I'm wrong, but the name obviously Castle and Key comes from the castle. But the key part, a lot of people don't know, comes from the E.H. Taylor constructing the spring house in the shape of a key because he believed and said that the key to good whiskey is the water. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is, that's where that key came from, right? Yeah. I mean, I think he was not a very subtle man necessarily. You know, he had this amazing, we have five natural springs on site. Uh, The most historically propitious of those is on kind of the hospitality side of our facility. And it was a well at first, and then he expanded it into this massive keyhole shaped peristyle. So it's kind of this Roman bathhouse aesthetic. And when we were working on the name of the facility, we had this like marketing group come up with like hundreds of names and we're like going through and we're like, no, no, no. 
and I think it was like Will or somebody had actually said, oh, what about like Castle and Key? Because there's a lot of writing with E.H. Taylor discussing this keyhole shaped peristyle. Yep. And, you know, he was a marketing genius. So E.H. Taylor is talking about it as the, you know, water is the key to good whiskey. So it was, it was almost like we had to get out of our own way on it, you know, because we're looking at all these marketing names and it's like, well, that doesn't work. That, that works. And we were like, well, we thought of Castle and Key in the beginning. But we're like, is it really that easy, right? Like you're almost like scared because it was too obvious. Um, and we were like, nah, man, we just got to like, and I remember I was still working at uh, Old Bourbon County Kitchen at that point, a bar that we had built with a couple of my buddies for Bluegrass Hospitality Group. And I would ask guests, you know, Will and Wes would come in and they'd give me like a list of names. And I would just like ask people like, hey, like, do you think this is a cool name for a whiskey brand? And they'd be like, no, or yes, or no, or yes. And like Castle and Key was like unanimously like people like that sounds pretty cool. Um, so we just kind of owned it. We jumped in and, uh, you know, didn't really look back a ton, but I think it couldn't be a bit a better name for the facility. No, I, it, it nails it. Um, absolutely. And it, it's one of those names somebody mentions at a, at a whiskey event or, or even at a local liquor store, you're like, Oh, Castle and Key, you know, I've had that. It's really good. It's, it's memorable. Um, with yeah. the restoration, I, think, I mean, that's kind of, that was a lot of the conversation around it. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you want, right? You want somebody to, I mean, I, I can probably remember a handful of whiskeys, but like there's some, you just forget easily, immediately. Yeah. But then yeah, also I mean, the that you have, been, you, you, know, the, you have the yeah. name and then you have the product to back it, to remember it. So now you're, you're saying, I remember the name. And I remember it, it was awesome. It was, it was a great ride. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, I always think of it from the bartending perspective. We used to always joke, like you want a good call, right? Like, and if I walk into a bar, I want to say, Hey, I want a castle and key on the rocks. Right. Or, you know, I want a restoration rye old fashioned. Yep. You know, I, we always, when we built bars in Kentucky, we never really carried a ton of French wine because I always said no one on a date night is going to order you know, like uh, I'll have the Southern Burgundy issue. Um, each, you don't want to look like, it, you know, you don't know what you're talking about in front of a date. So you always want to keep names of things on a menu that were easy to say. Like, you know, your cocktail menu names should be easy. Your whiskey names. I don't want you to say, oh, I need the Northern Von Backenberger, like the fifth uh, Jeffrey bottle. Like yeah. you just want it to set, come out of your mouth and make it make sense. Yep. With the restoration of the distillery, I understand there was like over 30 buildings on that property, if correct me if I'm wrong. And, and you touched on some of the Rick houses and obviously the distillery. Has there been any other major restorations on that property? Yeah, I mean, we're actually at the point now we have at least partially restored or addressed every single building or structure on site uh, other than one. Uh, we have an old bottling warehouse that had a massive uh, ceiling collapse, the floors are rotted out. So it's just a more aggressive renovation that's going to be required. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we restored two historic uh, barrel warehouses on site. We've restored the old historic cafeteria to a set of offices now um, and break room. The distilleries restored, the boiler rooms restored. Um, you know, the other one, I always forget because I just don't want to think about it because it's going to be a ton of work. <laughs> but we have behind me is the old administrative building. Um, and it's also missing its roof and there's a tree growing in the center of it. But long-term, you know, we'd like to do that. 
probably is like a boutique hotel or, you know, a lodging opportunity. But again, you know, our focus has always been whiskey first. You know, we have a, we do all of our own bottling on site. We repaired an old historic case storage warehouse. You know, we have an old uh, shooking building, which was used for decooperaging barrels that we turned into an event space. Um, you know, our, our old train depot became a, you know, bar and bathrooms for the public. Along with, we also have a superintendent's cabin on site uh, where this kind of supervisor of the facility or like your plant manager would have lived uh, really until probably about the 70s. So we actually just did a ton of restoration on the exterior of that building, preparing it for a new life as maybe a restaurant or maybe a tasting space. So uh, it's kind of never ending. It's like the show, you know, the movie, The Money Pit, um, but we don't have as many like funny <laughs> moments. <laughs> like I haven't fallen through any floors. Like, you know, we're not having like any relationship issues, but uh, no, I mean, it's it's been a joy to restore. I think the place wanted to be re- rebuilt. So you mentioned the bottling the bottling facility, the logo in the bottle, again, very eye-popping from, from the yeah. shelf. Uh, I noticed some aspects uh, from the property and your style that are reflected in elements of, of the bottles. And also, I appreciate yeah. that their Thank bottles you. are all uniform, which is pretty cool. But the, I believe the bottle cap reflects the ceiling or the chandelier in the spring house. Is there any other hidden significance or, or Easter eggs uh, on these bottle designs that we should know about? Yeah, I mean, the bottle itself, like kind of that aesthetic is actually modeled after that keyhole-shaped peristyle. Um, there's also that chandelier to it. Under E.H. Taylor, he uses a, a hanging planter for roses because he could. Um, then National actually electrified it. We just cut, restored it a little bit and left it. It's just an awesome yeah. object. Uh, but that scalloping too is actually based off of the roof. If you look at kind of the architectural aerial view, or you look up into that uh, the end of that keyhole, you see this really cool like scalloping. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try to take some of that like architectural components and translate them into the bottles. One of the other things is the colorways on them. You know, you see a lot of brass. Um, that brass is actually historic to E.H. Taylor. He used brass bands on his barrels. So prior to bottles being prevalent in our industry, a lot of product was being sold in barrel to different bars all over the country, like to places like Chicago. So if you went into a bar and behind the bar, there were three, four barrels of whiskey, E.H. Taylor's looked pretty. They had brass bands on them. So you knew that was like the good stuff. You know, so yeah, we also had the, the brass uh, down here and the brass, and the brass up here. Yep. Yeah. So we have brass components kind of throughout site. Um, you know, that's definitely one of the primary colorways that we've kind of used throughout. Um, and I also love the architecture of the bottles, you know, restoration rye, if you really look super tight in at the letters, it's engineering plans. You know, those, those hands are correcting engineering. Yeah, there's a bunch of like little engineering slogans all over it too. And kind of, and it also depicts a bunch of hands because the reality is, you know, we've had a ton of people contribute to this facility since its inception. And I think, you know, with a whiskey brand, you know, we're very gracious. I have a lot of opportunity to speak about the brand, but man, I think I probably work you know, I don't work nearly as hard as our production team or warehouse team or operations team. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that work really hard to keep us as what we are. Um, and, you know, we want to make sure we give them all credit. And then on the bourbon, you know, that's that front of the castle. Um, you know, I love that is taken from an image of the facility and then kind of given it some artistic flourish. Uh, but we actually have the historic sign for the distilleries over the castle. It just bears a different name. Um, and then that front door, I think, is such like a a monolith 
And two, on the Weeda bourbon, there's actually a key hidden in that bottle too on that label, which I think is kind of fun. The traditional bourbon is a little bit more obvious, but the Weeda bourbon is a little bit like kind of hidden. Um, so yeah, I think it's in the bottom too. If you flip the bottle upside down, you know, how many people look at the bottom of a bottle, but you know, the bottom of the bottle bears that castle and key mark again. So you did not know that until just now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, it's so funny. We worked with stranger and stranger and all this design. That's just a, they're a monolith in the field. Like they're one of the top design companies for spirits in the world. And they'd send us back stuff and we'd, we'd find it. Like it would take us a bit to find like how subtly they layered everything. But I think it's about the storytelling. You know, I want you to every time pick up one of our bottles, find something else about it. You know, I think of it, that's how I view music or art or even like a good movie. You know, I want to watch a movie and see something I didn't see the time before because it's so nuanced. Yeah. Um, you know, same with a book, like just, or art or music, God, revisiting an album you like and hearing something that you didn't hear the first time, I think is a really cool experience. You know, and how do you bring that into spirits? You know, we work on it on the blending side. Every time you revisit a glass of our whiskey, I want you to find something that you might have missed the time before. Um, but I want the bottle to do that too. Yeah, great presentation. Great. I mean, uh, again, eye popping. That's really what it is. I mean, how many times do you scratch your head at a liquor store? Um, do you source your ingredients locally in Kentucky? Do you have any grown on property? Yeah, initially we wanted to grow all of our gin botanicals on site. It just, a lot of the botanicals you need for gin just don't effectively grow in Kentucky. You know, a lot of things like Angelica, uh, the ginger and Roots of Ruin, we just don't have a growing season for it. So uh, with the gin, you know, we source from kind of best producer. You know, I always say if it, we can buy it local, we do if it's a better quality, but I wouldn't buy local just to buy local. You know, we want to be kind of deliberate with the quality of all of our ingredients uh, where I will say a lot of our grains we do buy locally. We work with an amazing farm out in Adairsville called Walnut Grove. Um, you know, they grow a lot of our heirloom white corns for us, our white corn, our yellow corn. Um, you know, we buy as much grain from them as we can. Uh, we're actually having them plant some of Will's family's farms too with some white corn as well. So if we can keep it as close to the facility as we can, we do. I will say rye has been tough. Like rye doesn't grow incredible, like super well in Kentucky. So we've been sourcing German rye just because that's the highest quality we're seeing in the industry right now. Okay. Um, and that might change. I always say with climate change and all that stuff, like it could be Sweden next year. It could be Canada. It could be the Midwest. We hunt best, best quality. Um, you know, most of our malt comes out of Europe right now that could change, you know, just kind of depends. Um, barrels are coming out of Jackson, Ohio. So about three hour drive from us, we work with Speyside Cooperage. Um, they source a lot of wood from with, around that facility as well. So, you know, trying to keep that stuff as local as we can, but also do a high quality standard. Um, yeah, and more of it. I mean, if I can get something close by that's really cool, I, we will. You know, we got one of our gens used spice bush. Um, that spice bush was coming locally. Um, one of our gens used Kalamanda, Kalamanda oranges. They don't grow in Kentucky, my dude. So we had to get those from Florida. <laughs> like, you know, so I, yeah, I was like, I'd love to see more experimentals with more Kentucky centric product. You know, before, you know, before I turn like, you know, 50, I really want to make like a pawpaw brandy. Uh, you know, pawpaws are native to Appalachia and also like Kentucky as a whole. They're kind of like this ugly avocado looking fruit that's sort of like, it tastes sort of like a weird banana bread and mango like yogurt. I don't know how else to describe it but it's awesome t 
to do, like to work with. Um, so I'd really like to make a pawpaw brandy. Um, so yeah, maybe that's a teaser on something I need to get off my ass and work on. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's some cool stuff locally that I, you know, I think we could really tap into some more as well. So out of all of the castling key expressions, you have the whiskey, you have the rye, you have the gin. You guys even have a vodka, I believe. Yeah. What would be considered your go-to bottle? Oh, man. I, I almost want to make a, a tease here and just be like, yeah, vodka. No, I'm just playing. Um, <laughs> I love our vodka. It's, it is probably one of the best vodkas that exists. It's just char- you know, super character-driven. It's nuanced. It's an awesome bottle. Uh, we keep one in the house for when we have friends over. I think for me, it's our rye whiskey. Like I love our bourbon. I think our bourbon's phenomenal. Um, but for me, the our price point on our rye whiskey, I think is amazing. I think you get a great value. I think it cocktails beautifully. I think our rye just does everything I want it to do, no matter what situation I'm in. Like, you know, I, I can drink it in a cocktail. I can drink it neat. I can drink it on a big cube when I'm watching baseball or hockey. Like it just kind of always hits for me. Yeah. Um, where our bourbon is like, almost too smooth in a way or too balanced. Like, you know, we work really hard for a bourbon to have a big round, super easy drinking profile. And, um, you know, personally at home, I like our rye because the speed I can drink our bourbon is pretty nasty. Um, I can, uh, you know, really enjoy it quickly. So, you know, I think rye slows me down enough to think about it a little bit more and, you know, keeps me uh, more functional, I guess, too. Absolutely. And leading into the bourbon, this is batch three. I just poured it, and I'll let you know. I've 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 been a fan from from y'all for from the beginning, and I can tell you that because when you came out with batch one, I bought two bottles, one to drink and one to keep. And so here is a sealed bottle of batch one that will be in my basement, my cellar. I don't know if I'll ever open it. I'm not sure if I should. But I know you can't get it anymore. I mean, I want, yeah, I tell you to open, I want everybody to open and drink everything. I'm also like the biggest hypocrite in that statement because (laughs) I try to keep a couple bottles of everything, you know, we blend. But I mean, even our team, there's not a lot of batch one around anymore. I think we all uh, definitely used it to celebrate releasing bourbon for the first time in almost 50 years. So yeah, yeah, I mean, we definitely enjoyed that bottle pretty thoroughly. I mean, batch one was the first bourbon to leave the old E.H. Taylor facility in 50 years or so. So it's almost like a historic expression, a historic bottle. Well, it's also just, you know, it was a culmination of a lot of everybody's efforts. You know, we've had some other contract clients release some other whiskeys as well that we distilled here. But for us, this was led, determined by our team. We thought it was ready. You know, we were really excited about it. And it's really not almost at that point, shoot, like eight years of work. You know, imagine going to work every day for eight years and then yeah. finally completing that project. You know, I, I don't know what other industry is like that where you have, you know, damn near a decade before you can kind of see the fruits of your efforts. Um, you got to have a lot of patience. And I think releasing that bottle uh, was just a, a, a real joy. I mean, I was also tired. It was like, it's done. Like, and then I had a second to be like exhausted from, you know, all the years leading up to that release. But I think then you just transition into a different life cycle where now it's like, well, that was really good. Now we need to get even better. 
So it's just a different mindset where you couldn't just sit back and let that thing go out and be like, and we've released bourbon. It's all cool now. We're done, guys. It's been great. You know, it's like, okay, now we're talking about, well, what does 2024 look like? What does 25 look like? You know, how are we going to get a 10-year-old released in 2030? You know, like, so it's a lot, it's just a different conversation after you actually release something. Absolutely. And, and so this, what I'm having now is the batch three, 96 proof, uh, 40 barrels on your batch, aroma of graham cracker, caramel, citrus peel, taste, honey, cedar, black pepper, slightly floral. And then the finish is the lemon zest and black pepper at the end. <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh, the black pepper at the end, but it's a good black pepper. Great product, great presentation. Again, everything in here is uniform. The, the, the presentation is phenomenal. Uh, can you dive into more of the blending and the mash bill on this? Yeah, so with our flagship bourbon, you know, we looked at kind of historically what E.H. Shaler was preferential to. The idea was never to copy him. Yeah. You know, we are our own distillery. We're a modern distillery, but, you know, he did definitely did some things pretty well. So we looked at his preference of white corn as well as, you know, E.H. Taylor was preferential and using a higher barley percentage. So at that point, you know, uh, with our R&D team and Marianne, we kind of looked at, well, how do we shape a whiskey that's going to be modern and have a lot of the flavors we're looking for? But also that white corn was kind of cool because it's not as corn bright. You know, with yellow corn, most distillers are using a pretty standard commoditized yellow corn where, you know, with that white corn, we were able to find a local farmer for it. It's doughier. It's a little bit softer. It doesn't have as much of that corn pop high tone to it at a younger age. So we started with a 73% white corn foundation. We added 10% rye to give some just secondary flavor, some structure, and then a much higher barley percentage at 17% just to add that. Wait, is that right? Sorry, I can't math. I'm like thinking my brain's floating around. <laughs> I guess it. Sorry. Yeah, I was like, I haven't done one of these in a while. I've been uh, in a blending cycle. So we actually took that grain bill, we aged it in Speyside Cooperage. And then when we blended it, we looked at, we started evaluating our barrels at four years of age. So what we'll do is we'll go into the warehouse and we'll say, hey, this is everything that's over four. And then we taste it. You know, you literally just start tasting, um, seeing where everything's at. Does, does certain barrels need more time? You know, do you want to wait in general? Um, so this was a four-year-old minimum age statement, but a lot of the barrels in there are probably closer to about four and a half, almost five years old. So we looked at all those barrels together and then we start building more functional components. So if you tried to blend 40 individual barrels from a set of 300 barrels, there's like infinite outcomes. Yeah. So what we do is we start building some smaller, what we call pods or components. I think of them as like building blocks. So you take, you know, five or 10 barrels and you put them into a little grouping. Um, that might be directionally flavor centric in one way or another. It could just be balanced to try to utilize some different ages or some different locations. You know, we have a couple different tactics for how we put those together. And then you evaluate those as an independent component. So we're going from 300 possible barrels to, you know, like 30 groups of 10. And then you start putting those together and like you will, you can make changes if you want to make changes, but in general, you just start kind of evaluating those, tasting all of those, and then understanding how you think they're going to work together. So then uh, what we do as a blending team is we just will taste through them all together. And then everybody kind of throws a couple guesses at a wall. I mean, I call them a guess. I mean, often you're quite right. Like you spend so much time evaluating that product that you really have a really good understanding of how it's going to work together. 
Um, but you'll say like, hey, with this blend, we had, I think it was like six options that we liked at first. Um, so we put out, these are six different combinations that don't have any overlap. You know, they're all unique. And then which one's the right direction? So we found a couple out of that that we liked, and then we made some adjustments or alterations. And then you come up with your final blend options, and then you kind of let them duke it out. Uh, we do the final selection blind. Um, you know, we don't really worry about who produces that blend. You know, I, I'm our lead blender, head blender, but, you know, I don't get my feelings hurt. If somebody puts a better whiskey in front of me than the ones I came up with, we're 100% going with it. Like, there's no ego involved. What our team is hellbound on is to find the best whiskey. Um, that could be blended by our office manager. It could be blended by somebody on the blending team. I do not care where it comes from. I want the best whiskey possible. So, and then we were, it also helps to have other people in that room because it means that you're not like unilaterally or like singular focus. Like you can put blinders on um, and we want to make sure we're picking something that everybody's going to be happy with on our team. So um, yeah, we now have a blending team of five members. So we just worked on training some more up. So we have five people, including myself, and we kind of come up with the majority of our blends, uh, but we also use a sensory team that has about 15 to 20 people on it just to check on stuff and to evaluate pods and to make sure that we really understand our whiskey. Um, it also has to do with data. I know that's not the sexiest conversation ever, but uh, data is cool, man. You know, the more feedback <clears throat> and inputs we get, mm -hmm. it just helps us understand our products better. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so out of the bourbon batches, you have a bunch of releases so far. Mm -hmm. I got one, I got three, there's some in between. I think there's some yeah. after. What's your favorite oh, man. bourbon release so far? Oh, that's always that's like the favorite child question, right? <laughs> like we only have, we only have one right now, so yeah, my favorite child is our son because we have one one child. Um, but that's I think it's so mood based for me, right? Like I think there's a reason we love every batch. Um, you know, every batch is going to be variable too. So, you know, we'll meet consumers that will say oh, I, I, I didn't like batch four, but I love batch five. And I'm like, good, right? Like if you love every batch that we do, it means that, you know, we could have been doing better maybe, you know, I want, it's okay to have a difference of opinion. Um, my favorite batch from last year on bourbon, I, in the winter time, I've really been digging batch five. Yeah. Um, one, of our, one of our sales guys calls it the Babe Ruth batch and that pisses me off so much, but because sales guys just have to, they got to give everything like a nickname. Why you know, do they call like, it the oh, Babe man. Ruth? He's totally right, though. It has like a ton of like this like caramel nougat chocolate covered peanut quality to it, and like he like after the bait like candy bar, and he's like, oh, I think the, I think the reason I'm mad is that he's right, but it's like you know it's the sales guys, man. They're just on the hustle. They just got to try to like you know spend something, and he's totally right though. I mean, I was thinking just, baseball player Babe Ruth. I wasn't thinking candy bar Baby Ruth. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he says. He kind of he's like he also calls it a home run. Okay. You know, so it's that there it it's is. that baby Ruth Babe Ruth combo. Uh huh. Um, yeah, man, it just he can't stop himself. <laughs> but it's it's probably my favorite for this winter. It's you know it's going to have a really full body to it. Um, I really do like those like caramel chocolate tones. I think we I was really happy with it initially. I actually thought I liked batch four better, uh, but after drinking them last week again. I think I'm leaning batch five right now, but ask me next week. I could change my mind. Um, I was really excited about the weeded bourbons though, too. 
um, from last year. You know, I think both batches of weeded bourbon we were pretty proud of. Um, they're both over five years old. You know, one of them is actually bottle and bond. It's just not listed on the label, but it's a hundred proof uh, five-year-old that was only from a single season. So um, I was really happy with weeded. We just finished up our first two batches of bourbon this year as well. Um, we finished our rye and weeded as well, but it just it, it just began bottling batch two of bourbon. And if I'm looking at all bourbon across the board, man, it might be batch two from 2023 so far. That might be my overall favorite. Um, you know, the, the, this, you know, if I want to give a shout out to our sales team, it's always like the best batch of bourbon is going to be the one that's released this year. Right. But uh, no, I mean, I think they're all great for different reasons, but I'm definitely, our whole team is incredibly excited about the new batches coming out this year. We've just gotten even every year we get better at what we do. And um, yeah, I, I can't wait to see our releases this year. I can honestly say that I've only had one in three. Definitely different in their own ways. Same foundation. Yep. But slightly different characteristics to it. Yeah, I think we look for some continuity. You know, yeah. we always like a really good nose. We want a really round and like pleasant palate. But I mean, I think of it, you know, in, the, in any space of products that are being done well, like I look at like cigars, like Pardon, like if you like that cigar, you're going to pretty much like everything in their family. You know, I think they have a stylistic approach. I think there's some basic continuity between their products, um, you know, but every smoke is going to be a little different. Um, and I think that's kind of what we do, too, where we have a really good foundation where I think if you like our products, you're going to generally like most of them. Um but you're going to be able to find something that you really love in certain expressions more than others. And that's cool. Question I just thought of. You, you're in the old age Taylor distillery. The age Taylor was a supporting role in bottle and bond act. Yep. Do you have any bottle and bond releases or do you bottle and bond everything? So bottle and bonds probably going to be coming, you know, initially we always wanted to do a bottle and bond. We said it would just, we want it to be purposeful. Like if a batch is going to be better bonded, it's going to be bonded. Uh, but so far we've really been commingling a couple different seasons. Some of that's just like logistically oriented. Um, you know, the first year of production, we produced distillate from November to December, you know, the next year, we produced kind of erratically for ourselves. You know, we were making whiskey for other clients. We were dialing in our systems. So we didn't really lay down inventory deliberately enough that it, we're going to have like large chunks of barrels that would be easy to bond. So the challenge with that is like, if I'm looking at like our oldest barrels, I have like a couple hundred barrels that are six years old and they would have been different seasons. So instead of like forcing a really tiny, tiny release, like, 10 or 20 barrels that would have just pissed everybody off. The idea was to co-mingle different seasons to build a better product profile. Yeah. Um, but once we get into some larger inventories, it's going to be easier to bond. So uh, you'll definitely see some bonded bourbon coming out of this facility when it's time. Um, you know, frankly, we wanted to be a little bit older too. You know, four-year-olds, the minimum age statement on a bonded, um, you know, a lot of our blends are going to be a lot older than that on average age. You know, most of the bourbons are closer to about five years old on average age. Weeda bourbon is going to this year be over almost six. Um, 
it wouldn't surprise me if you saw like a weeded bourbon bottle and bond, uh, you know, maybe like a six or seven year old product being released sooner than later um, once we get that age right. So yeah, I mean, lots of cool stuff coming down the pipe. So just keep an eye out for it. Um, yeah, we just wanted to be deliberate, I guess. Yeah, that's always for everyone's first question was like, why wasn't the first batch bonded? And I'm right. like, didn't taste better bonded. You know, our first, our first couple of barrels of production were fine. I mean, they weren't bad, but, you know, the best distillate we've made so far is what we're making today. Yeah. You know, you're always going to be getting better. So we just didn't want to bond for no reason. Talk about other projects here. You have, can you talk a little bit about the untold story of Kentucky, the untold story of Kentucky whiskey collaboration that you do? Yeah, so that's definitely one of a project we have a big heart around. So, you know, a few years ago with a lot of like just the civil upheaval in the United States and being like so close to uh, Louisville with the Breonna Taylor incident, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges like, we were seeing across a variety of industries. And one of the things that we felt pretty confident about is, you know, when we're looking at diversity in the industry as a whole, there was a lot of places that said, Oh, we're going to donate money to this, or we're going to, we're going to put up a poem on our Instagram page. And frankly, with our sales team and our ownership, we just didn't feel like that necessarily fully addressed what we were witnessing in the United States. So the idea became to just be really introspective. So we called uh, one of our friends, Mike with the Kentucky black bourbon guild and just kind of had a conversation around like, what is our industry not great at? And, you know, and I don't think our industry historically, it was diverse, but, you know, as we became very corporatized and through kind of like the 60s, 70s and 80s, like a lot of like African-American contributions to our industry were really forgotten about or frankly removed from history. And we looked at, you know, a lot of the companies in bourbon and corporations in bourbon, there's not necessarily appropriate uh, representation in our field. And then we kind of asked the question, well, why is that? And, you know, Mike had a lot of really great conversations around that. And I think a lot of it was, well, you don't know you can be in a field that you don't see yourself already in. Like if you don't see people of like minds or like, you know, or of that diversity perspective, you know, if you're not seeing other people of color in your field, like why would you feel like the door is going to be open for you? So uh, we kind of said, well, let's let's do something, and we don't want to do something just once. We want to do something continuously. So the idea was to launch this product called Untold Story. Uh, we worked with a amazing uh, professor of history, um, Professor Gillum, and the idea was that we're going to on the bottle talk about African American uh, contributions to bourbon, and then the money from that product, you know, 100% of the proceeds of that bottle is going to go to fund a diversity scholarship fund. So that's going to help get education in the hands of people of color that are interested in the field. And, you know, ideally, like if they, if anybody wants to drive a castle key, that would be awesome. That would help us increase um, our variant perspectives on site. But it was also just, we wanted to see the industry become more diverse as a whole. So if you're interested in engineering, if you're interested in chemical engineering, if you're interested in hospitality, accounting, whatever, you know, that scholarship fund's an option for you um, to just help give you an advantage into an industry that needs and is craving more diverse perspectives. Um, and it was just an awesome project to work on. You know, the Kentucky Black Bourbon Guild, they're just an absolute joy to work with. They throw some amazing events um, and tell some really great stories of American history. So um, we're all big history nerds here. So we were like, hey, if we're going to do this project, we're going to do it right. 
Yeah. Uh, the first bur- the first bourbon ever bottled by Castle and Key, the first bourbon barrel was in Untold Story Chapter One. It was a rye and bourbon blend. Uh, this year, it was a weeded and bourbon barrel blend. And the next year, we'll see what it's going to be. But uh, I, I would bet money that it's going to be something pretty cool. And we intend to do this indefinitely. It's an endowment. So it's not a one-time scholarship. We want this to exist for a heck of a long time. Yeah, I, I, phenomenal cause, phenomenal yeah. collaboration. Uh, and I'm sure that everyone appreciates your efforts on that. Uh, anything coming up, special projects, things in the works, you kind of teased us with some things so far, but what, what can we expect uh, or oh, any secrets um, that you can give up? Yeah, that's, I always love everyone on the media side. It's always like, will you tell me something that no one else knows so I can write a story about it? Like, maybe. Um, yeah, I think right now, you know, the focus this year is to focus on just our blends overall, you know, trying to get more whiskey out onto the market. You know, this year we sold out so quickly that, you know, people were mad that they couldn't find it. We get, we hear you. We hear you loud and clear. I wish I had more barrels in the warehouse. Um, always want more inventory. But, you know, we have some upcoming spring releases. You know, we're going to have two new batches of bourbon. You know, we have a new batch of rye whiskey coming out. We have a new batch of weeded bourbon coming out. You'll see another couple uh, come out in fall as well. The cool secret projects that we're working on, you know, we're working on a project called Wool Gatherer. So we did the first two iterations of that this past year. So as our gins became permanent, you know, with rise being now for spring and summer and harvest being the same recipe for fall and winter, um, you know, we decided that those are going to become kind of yearly limited editions. They're going to come back every year, but we still wanted to really innovate. So we were working on a project that we named Wool Gatherer, which is super small runs, you know, maybe four, maybe 500 bottles, like tops. Um, And that was really for us to be more adventurous. Like there was some stuff we wanted to experiment with. um, And if they're super successful, then you might see that kind of morph into R&D that's going to fund a larger project um, of the, uh, but scaling it. And the first one was a uh, orange kind of citrus centric gin that we put into rum agricole barrels or rum barrels. So we aged that for almost a year. Okay. Super, super cool project, like almost like this tiki, like tropical flair to it. Uh, for fall this year, we did a Vino de Durano barrel aged rye whiskey. Um, it tasted like a chocolate Terry's orange. Uh, Vino de Durano is a Spanish orange wine. Yeah. And it was just this like chocolatey, citrus, like super spice, baking spice driven. Um, awesome project. We only got like a couple hundred bottles out of that um, project. And the whole view is like where you do them as an on-site exclusive. You, we normally have like a party or an event around as a launcher that ties back to the site. So the first one was a garden party. People got like dressed up in like formal garden apparel. Don't worry. Uh, I had to Google it too. I didn't know what I was supposed to wear. Um, that's like a whole aesthetic, man. I think it's like linen suits, um, you know, like sundresses. But that was an awesome party that we did with John Karloftis, who's our you know fine gardener who works on the project. Uh, for wool gather for the whiskey, we did a brunch. Uh, coming up for Valentine's Day, we're doing our newest project, the first one for this year. It is a rye whiskey coffee cordial. So we took we worked with Manchester Coffee, which is an awesome roastery in downtown Lexington. Um, they've been a great partner for years. We sourced a specific Mexican bean that we thought would work really really well with the blend. Um, so we actually did that with things like cassia bark and three different peppers. So it's going to be this like 
Mexican hot chocolate coffee cordial. And I love the idea behind it. Henry, who kind of leads that R&D side on the creative component of it and execution, you know, we tasted coffee cordials. Like we were like, we want to make a coffee liqueur. And then we found that a lot of them in the store kind of tasted like coffee. Yeah. Cool. They're great. And there's a lot of good ones out there, but we, what we didn't see was any that were like creative and looked at different botanicals. So, you know, utilizing those peppers and that blend, man, it is just, it is delicious. I mean, it has all that coffee up front and then all of a sudden you get this all this like floral, funky, like hot finish to it. Um, it's going to be really cool to cocktail with. And we only have a couple hundred bottles Hell yeah! and uh, we're, we're doing a Valentine's day dinner with that. There's only 25 couples that sold out about the first hour or two, I think. Um, so that one was definitely fun. Then this spring, no one knows about this. So if you're listening, keep an eye out for it. Uh, we are, we finished designing a botanical vodka. Um, so think it's a vodka without juniper basically, right? It's a gin without juniper, uh, but it's incredibly like citrus led. So it's like this massive, like grapefruit peel with a ton of other depth behind it. I don't want to give all the product details because it's super tasty. Also, no one knows about it yet, uh, but we're going to be doing a, a seltzer party with it. So you'll be able to come out, drink some like low, low ABV cocktails around the spring house. You know, we're going to have music and food and stuff. So I think that's going to be a really cool event. Just we scheduled it for perfect, pretty weather. Um, we also have some whiskeys aging in alternative barrels. So, you know, you'll see four more of them this year. I just, I gave you a sneak peek on two of them. Um, I can't tell you about the other two because we don't a hundred percent know which, what's going to be what until we decide later this year. Uh-oh. Yeah, it, it, it's, thank you for that insight. Um, going back to the, 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 the vodka, um, I, I'm looking forward to that. Any up, speaking of, and also segueing into the events, any upcoming events at the distillery or can Castling Key be found at any type of, uh, upcoming events that people can come see you, shake your hand, drink your stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is always a pitch for our website. We spend all this money on this big, gorgeous, new, beautiful website. So, you know, definitely follow us at castleandkey.com. You know, there's going to be events listed there. We are also going to be able to, if you want to jump on the tour or just see our business hours or see what products that we have, you know, that's always a great place to just interact with us. Um, you know, it's also 2023. I almost said 2022, yep. but yeah, check, check us thing. out on social. Yeah. Check us out on social media. You know, they do, our team does an amazing job on Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. So that's a great place to just kind of see what's coming down the pipe. The, the best place is frankly, our, if you look on our website, there's a VIP mailing letter we send out or newsletter. We don't send it out of time. You're not going to get it every morning at 8am, like half the crap that shows up in my inbox. Yep. You know, we only send you something if it's pertinent. So we send out like a newsletter about once a month, maybe a little bit extra if we're sending out cocktail recipes or cool things that are happening. Um, but that's always where that's like the first place we tell anybody about anything. So if you're looking for, you know, we have a bunch of really cool events coming up this year. You know, we might be doing some more on-site events. Keep an eye out for that. I can't talk about them yet because they're not like formal yet. So, uh, but that's always kind of like the secret first place things get dropped. Um, so also if anything's going to hit, like we can sell directly, it's called directed to consumer. You know, we can ship to a handful of States right now. 
And if like theoretically bourbon was going to be available to those states that we can ship to, you know, that's always the first place to see it pop up too. Um, additionally, yeah, check with your local. If you know we're in 17 states, we're expanding into California. So if you're a local retailer, um, you know, or you're a cool bar and restaurant that wants to do an event, always reach out to somebody on our sales team. You know, we'd love to work with you guys too. We do a lot of cool collaborations. Um, you know, heck, coming up before Valentine's Day, I'm doing an event in Louisville. It's a charity dinner that we love to work with. Um, you know, we do a couple of those all over the country as the year goes on. So, yeah, come and hang out and listen to us talk more about whiskey. It's not a bad, bad deal. You said Louisville the right way. Yeah, Louisville. You just slur through it. Louisville. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and folks, if you're listening, Castle and Key is, can be found in Illinois. Because that's where I find mine. And yep. uh, the Chi-Town crew, if you're out there, go yeah, find it. Yeah, we're in it. Ohio now, too. So, oh, yeah, sweet. Whole, okay, cool. Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, um, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida. Uh, we're working on some stuff on the East Coast. Um, I think Arizona, like a little, we're growing, you know, Wisconsin, Colorado. So um, look online because our sales team is going to beat me up for not remembering all 17 or 18. But man, I don't know what I ate for dinner last night. So I'm just doing my best here. Here for, for you cigar smokers, I will say, like I'll tease one thing that's coming up. Uh, keep an eye out for Father's Day. I wouldn't be surprised if we were doing a collaboration uh, for a couple different projects there. So mm -hmm. we might be doing a, a pop-up with one of my favorite uh, knife companies in the world. Uh, we might be doing some like cigar stuff. Just keep an eye out for it is all I can say. We have some cigar smokers listening. I figured. So I'm just, yeah, it's like, if, you. you know, there might be a cool, if you're looking for something beyond, you know, unique to go do on Father's Day, we might be doing something cool on site. So just keep an eye out. All right. Last question. If you were not, if you were to pour a drink and it wasn't Castling Key, what would you pour? Man, um, it, so if I'm blending, um, I'm doing a lot of drinking during the day. I, I always am honest with people. I go home and I drink a lot of, um, I'll drink like a Coors Banquet beer or a non-alcoholic beer. I know that sounds wild, but when you're drinking alcohol all day, sometimes you want a beer, but I don't want to necessarily catch a buzz. Yep. Um, you know, Athletic Brewing Company, Guinness Zero, Heineken Zero, they're all really great. Um, I kind of found it, you know, a bunch of my friends, you know, love boating and stuff. And if you're being responsible while you're boating, you know, your driver should be kind of just drinking NAs anyway. Um, but yeah, I drink a weird amount of non-alcoholic beer because, you know, when I'm waking up at eight in the morning to start drinking whiskey, it's just, you know, it's good to be mindful about your consumption. Um, if I'm going on a date night, I'm generally drinking. I love good cocktails. You know, I'm a big fan of like Vucre's, Old Fashions, Manhattan's, um, Boulevardier's. So I do like a whiskey cocktail pretty heavily. Um, I drink a lot of good wine. There's a lot of awesome other whiskeys out there too. You know, I'm always like, I think Castle and Key, we make some awesome oh. product, but we have friends from all over the country, you know, up in, up your way. There's um, like, Blom Brothers, I think they make some great whiskey. You know, I drink a lot of single barrel picks from all over the country. Um, you know, Starlight makes great whiskey. Um, Four Roses makes great. Everybody makes good whiskey. So uh, don't be shy to check out other people's stuff. You know, I know that's our PR people are always like, yeah, talk about Castle and Key. Oh, but, yeah. You know, I think if you're not trying other people's products, like you're doing a disservice to the industry. Um, I think we're kind of in this golden era. There's just an amazing quality across the United States right now. 
Um, I also drink a lot of scotch. I think scotch challenges my palate more than bourbon does. Um, there's a bigger diversity in your product profiles. So I drink a lot of peated scotch, a lot of uh, Japanese whiskey, Irish whiskey. Um, you know, I'm trying to keep this fine-tuned machine running. And, uh, you know, if I'm not trying other people's stuff, it just I can't keep it going. But, yeah, I always love that answer. It's like cheap beer or good beer if I'm, like, on a date. Yeah. Hey, uh, my, when my wife was uh, pregnant, I tried, I tried not to drink with her. Yeah, that's how that's how we were exactly. And uh, there are some actually half decent non-alcoholic beers out there that I was there, like, oh, there shit. were not years ago. Yeah, there used to be like what Beck's non-alcoholic. Yeah. like that's not the one. Like you but, can go yeah. with an O'Doul's, but like Heineken O is actually not that awful. It's great. Yeah, I mean that's kind of how I got into it. Is we're I was trying to like you know just be supportive of like that experience for her and. Uh, so we got into, you know, non-alcoholic cocktails, non-alcoholic beers, and yep. it kind of stayed, it stayed around because mocktails. I, yeah. Mocktails are killer. And it stayed around because I I could drink as much as I wanted every day of the week and no one would say a word to me. So it just helps me pace my consumption a little bit. And when you're consuming at work, like even if you're spitting, I'm just engaging with a lot of alcohol. So I do find, you know, throw some non-alcoholic beers in your rotation to drink with your whiskey. It's not a bad thing. No, not at all. Yeah, and support your partners, guys. That's a real that's real things, man. It really is. It goes yeah, a long way. Yeah, one of my best friends, his wife was just like DD during her pregnancy, and Amanda was like, no way we're doing that. It's <laughs> like, so, yeah, you're supposed to drive me around so I can drink every night of the week. And she's like, yeah, we're not doing that. And I was like, cool. That's not how you support <laughs> your partner in that situation. Uh it- I, I, again, I use the word try. There was times where I'm like, no, there was times she, I mean, Amanda bullied me to drink more. You know, she'd be like, I need to watch you drink a beer. And I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) You know, I was like, yeah, I think it's just about communication and to make people feel like, you know, you guys are supporting each other. So yeah, this is now a cigars and relationship advice. You're welcome. Your partners. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Uh, Folks. Please check out the line of Castling Key at your local brick and mortar, retail, online stores. Uh, head out, go to your local watering hole and be like, give me Castling Key knee. Trust me, uh, the, the rye, the bourbon, and even the gin neat was fantastic. Like you said, a lot of people don't drink gin neat, but absorb that flavor to learn about it and, and kind of experience it the right way. Trust me, get a little chill. It's like what? 12 degrees and here in Chicago and I'm in a shed with a space <laughs> heater next to me, but trust me, check it out. Castle and key. Their beautiful and historic site is located 44, 45 McCracken Pike, Frankfort, Kentucky, that's in the 40601, uh, or you can check them out at castlingkey.com. Brett, how would somebody uh, get a hold of you guys to do like a wedding, a birthday, some type of event like that? Yeah, so in general, you know, the easiest is to go check out that website. There'll be a couple of different email links for helping you track down what you're tracking down. Um, the easiest one, though, is info at castlingkey.com. Uh, or events, if you're trying to look on the event side for corporate events, weddings, all the like, that would just be events at castleandkey.com. We try to make it easy for y'all to track us down. 
or you know just uh, slide into our DMs, and I'm sure they'll write you, route you to the right place. <laughs> slide into Brett DMs. Uh, Not mine. Don't, oh, don't okay. slide into my DMs. Got yeah, hit up Castling Keys DMs. Castling Keys. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm I'm like horrible about social media. So if you ever send me anything and I never respond, like it's not personal, I just didn't see it or I forgot. Brett's so tired of people sliding into his DMs. Uh, <laughs> I still I still get people sliding in my DMs asking me for whiskey, and I'm just like, man. I, just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I believe our time is coming down to a nub. My cigar is almost down to a nub. Brett, thanks again. Uh, I appreciate you yeah. joining, taking the time, chatting about castling key it, phenomenal uh expressions from everything here uh i know my local uh distillery and or my local liquor store in batavia illinois they carry your stuff so it's really awesome to find that two blocks that way but i appreciate you taking the time uh folks don't forget Check out our official sponsor of the Cigar Social Podcast, Black Star Line Cigars, at blackstarline.shop. Use promo code CIGARSOCIAL15. That's CIGARSOCIAL15. 15% off your entire order, and there's an and. Receive free shipping on any order over 100 bucks. So check them out. Great cigars. Great stuff. Brett, thanks again. Uh... Folks, thanks for listening. I'll, we'll see you next time here at the Cigar Social Podcast. Yeah, thank you all again for having me. Have a good day.